0: Again, Lord, the words of our lips are the prayer of our hearts, that you would come burn within and renew a holy passion. Father, we need this morning that soul-refreshing view of Jesus, and you have given it to us in your words. So meet with us now by the power of your Spirit that we would not remain unchanged. We ask in His perfect name. Amen. Please be seated. So this week I've been thinking about parables, and I came across a parable in this this book. Now this book is a, a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, so it's kind of a... A serious book. And to make sure that you understand just how serious it is, they they gave it this subtitle. And not just a commentary on Matthew, but the reformed expository commentary on Matthew. So this is saying, you better take me serious when you open me up, right? So okay, we open you up to page 544 and taking you very seriously, read this parable to you. In the mountainous regions of northern Italy, there was a small monastery that overlooked a small subalpine village. Every day, early in the morning, a monk wended his way down a footpath to say Mass in the village church. One cold morning in spring, he spied a small bird by the side of the path, shivering with cold and almost expired. Without hesitation, he picked it up and examined it and then, for lack of an alternative, put it inside his habit next to his warm body. By the time he had reached the piazza in front of the church, the little bird had revived enough to be wriggling about rather briskly under his garment and he realized he could not bring it with him into the church. The bells began to chime. As he stood wondering what to do, he noticed a great steaming cow pie. Providentially placed there by a dairy cow departing for the meadows beyond the village. Gently, but firmly, he set the bird down into this warm and gelatinous mixture. Gelatinous. <laughs> That's good word choice, wasn't it? Uh, and went into the church. The bird was revived still further by the warmth of the cow pie, so much so that it began to sing. An old fox patrolling over the stone wall of the churchyard heard it, hopped over into the piazza quick as a flash, snapped it out of the cow pie, and ate it. There are three points to this story. <laughs> First, the one who puts you into it isn't necessarily your enemy. Second, the one who gets you out of it isn't necessarily your friend. Third, when you find yourself up to your beak in the stuff, sometimes it's best to keep your beak shut. <laughs> <laughs> Parables, parables, parables. Parables do have a kind of power, do they not? I mean, even in that that story, it's it's very simple lessons, but the story, the parable, has a way of engaging our imaginations, a way of catching us up in the story that ultimately serves, really, to to drive the point home. Well, we turn from a somewhat funny example to a much more important example, not in this book, but in, in this book. The parable of the sower that we read of in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus is trying to do something similar. He's trying to capture our imagination, take us along in the story that he might drive the point home. And I would suggest to us this morning that unlike the parable of the monk and the bird and the fox, the parable of the sower and the seed, the soils, is the most important parable you will ever hear. If you have the ears to hear it. The most important parable we will ever hear if we have the ears. hear it. I want to work our way through it in a very old school way together this morning. We'll look together at the context of the parable. Where is Jesus when he tells us this? Secondly, we'll look at the content of the parable. What is he trying to teach us? Thirdly, we'll look at the consequences of the parable. What is it that we're to take away from it? Context, content, consequence. Let's dive in together then. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, looking at the context of this parable we read in verse 1 that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach here Matthew tells us when Jesus tells the parable who he tells it to and where he was when he told it first of all when Jesus told this parable we read verse 1 that same day Jesus went out of the house well What day is this? It's simply connecting us to all the events of chapter 12, uh, highlighting this to to remind us that by this point in chapter 13, Jesus has already had one heck of a day. He's already been remarkably busy. Turn over to chapter 12 and just look at some of the titles there. You'll see that on this day, Jesus has already healed the sick. Uh, Before lunch, he's already cast out a demon. After lunch, he's already spent hours preaching and teaching to the people. Throughout the course of the day, of course, he has been harassed by the Pharisees and even been interrupted by his own family. It's the end of a long day, and we wouldn't blame, blame Jesus if at this point he's, it's time to, time to take a knee. Time to go home, relax a little, Netflix, glass of wine, chill after what's already been a hard day's work. But that's not what Jesus does. <laughs> What does he do? He goes out to the seashore to be with his people. He keeps his hand to the plow for the sake of his people. Jesus is prepared to pour out his life for his people, even as he's prepared in a few chapters time to pour out his death for his people as well. Now, doesn't that just tell us something about him? Doesn't that tell us something about the Jesus that that we serve? Because, you know, Jesus, the one who's telling this parable, is the king. He is the king, the king before whom all other kings will cast their crowns. He is the one of all might, all glory, all splendor. He's the definition of everything powerful, of everything lovely, of everything that's good. And yet, even this king came not to be served, but to serve. What a beautiful example we have over here. He's serving. He's attending to his people. He's caring for his people because He loves us. So just even these first three words, before we even get to the parable, should just create a little worship in us. (laughs) We come to the king who's here to serve. Well, secondly, who does he tell this parable to? We read in verse 2 that Jesus is sitting beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him. Great crowds gathered about him. We can picture it in our mind's eye, can we not, that, that Jesus has gone out to sit by the seashore and a couple of folks have come to, to talk to him and then people are trickling in one by one until suddenly this large multitude is gathered around him. Perhaps an old man shuffled over and lent on his staff. Perhaps a, a young couple came up hand in hand. Perhaps there were children running through the knees of the crowd. Slowly but surely, before you know it, this great crowd has gathered. Now, on one hand, of course, there's something very commendable about that, because for most of these people, it was likely not all that easy to come out and hear Jesus. Why? Because they didn't have public transportation. They didn't have Uber for when public transportation isn't working out so well. They didn't have um, a great parking lot or an air-conditioned sanctuary. They didn't have all the ease of technology that that we have today to, to, to make it so easy. But although there's something commendable about this, I think we also want to to not miss the irony of it. Matthew is highlighting something important here because he's reminding us that, yeah, there's a great crowd there, and each of them would in one way or another fulfill the parable that's about to be told. So Jesus is going to tell a parable about those who hear and believe. And in the crowd, there would be those who heard and believed. But the parable is also about those who hear and don't believe. And standing there with sand between their toes, listening to Jesus as he speaks, there are those who hear and don't believe. And what a good reminder for us as we gather in this crowd that yes, we'll try and interpret the parable, but the parable will also interpret us. Jesus is telling us these words that we might understand something of our own spiritual condition. And the irony that Matthew includes is it's designed to highlight that for us. So when, who, lastly, where? I just love this detail. Uh, Jesus on the seashore, the crowds gathered around, so he, verse two, had to get into a boat and sit down. You would love that. Um, it was common in Jesus' day for the teacher to sit and the people to stand. Aren't you glad we don't do it that way? You know, I'm glad to do it that But it wasn't necessarily common to teach from a boat. He's doing this because the crowd that's gathered is so large. And I just, there's something beautiful about the fact that Jesus doesn't preach from a great cathedral. And Jesus doesn't even have some grand Roman theater. He doesn't have a nice red-carpeted sanctuary. He has a wobbly pulpit that smells of fish and makes his toes wet. (laughs) And it reminds us, does it not, that (laughs) Jesus doesn't need impressive surroundings because Jesus is impressive. And Jesus doesn't need anything to adorn him with beauty because he himself is already beautiful. And that's a good word for me as I, as I meet to worship with you guys. Because, you know, we're here in this sanctuary with beautiful sanctuary, beautiful liturgy, beautiful music. That's not what we need. What we need is Jesus. Now, insofar as the sanctuary and the liturgy and the music point us to him, then they are beautiful. And we should celebrate them as well. But our hearts and our minds this morning need to be fixed on him. On him as we come to his word to us. So, worshipping, examining ourselves, coming to Christ. In that context, let's look together at the content of this parable. It's one of those sections of scripture that is... um, helpful because we don't really need to guess at what the parable is about. Why not? Because Jesus tells us exactly what the parable is about. So look at your Bible, even just look at the headings. You'll see it at the heading above verse 1 says the parable of the sower. Then jump to the heading of verse 18. It says the parable of the sower explained. So Jesus tells us the parable and then he tells us what it's about. So let's look at these two, uh, compare these two passages as we work through it together. Jesus makes clear that there are really three main features of the parable that he wants us to understand. Again, this isn't a parable about a monk and a bird and a fox, but a parable that's about a sower, the seed, and the soil. The sower, the seed, and the soil. The sower is first mentioned in verse 3. You see it there? A sower went out to sow. Well, who, who is this sower? Who does this sower represent? Look down at verse 37. We see Jesus tells us the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The son of man being this phrase that Jesus uses. It's his favorite self-designation. His favorite nickname for himself. It comes from the book of Daniel, and it refers to the Messiah. It refers to the Savior. So Jesus is saying, the one who sows the good seed is the Messiah. The one who sows the good seed is the Savior. The one who sows the good seed, in other words, is, is me. It's me. The sower in our text is, is Jesus. Secondly, we see the seed. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, the rocky ground, the thorns, the good soil. The seed fell along, these these four areas. What does the, the seed refer to? Well, look with me at verse 19. Jesus explains, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes in and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The seed is the word of the kingdom, the message of salvation. In other words, the seed is the gospel. The good news of salvation that's found in Christ. Christ pictures himself as the sower. And he is this great farmer who walks through the field scattering this good news of the gospel onto these various types of soil. Now, now at first I thought, it's kind of a strange picture. You know, to picture himself as a farmer and to have this seed. You know, Jesus, he's making this up. It's a parable. So he could have made himself and the gospel anything. You know? He could have said, like, I am a king and the gospel is my sword, right? Or if he was feeling imaginative, he could have said, like, I am the dragon and the gospel is the fire that I breathe, you know? Why does he use this picture of seed for the gospel? I mean, if I was making it up, I think I would have gone for something more egotistical, right? Something more powerful, like a fire or a sword. Well, then we remember, do we not? John chapter 12. Flick there if you would. Here we see why Jesus often pictures the gospel as as seed. Some Greeks have come to him and they've asked those famous words of Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, those words which are emblazoned on the plaque on our pulpit. Jesus comes and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then verse 24, here's the verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed... It falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses the picture of a seed as the gospel because it communicates something that's very that's at the core and the essence of what the gospel actually is. The gospel hasn't come to destroy with a sword. The gospel hasn't come to scorch the earth with fire. Christ has come in the gospel that he might die in order that he might bear much fruit. And so the seed, rather than becoming a strange picture because it lacks power, becomes the perfect picture because it's weak. Because it's weak. In dying, Christ will bring life. And in dying, the seed will bear fruit. So we see the sore is Jesus The seed is the gospel, and then the third feature of the parable is the soils. The soils, which represent different responses to the gospel are our own hearts. Again, we see that in verse 19, where we've read that the evil one will come and snatch away the seed that has been sown in his heart. Jesus, the gospel, and then our response to the gospel. And we see, don't we, how Jesus lays out four different responses that that people might make to the gospel. Four different kinds of soil, four different kinds of heart. The first type of response that we read of is in verse 4, where we read that some seeds fell along the path. Fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. This is what Jesus has said, is that the seed that has fallen on, on, on the path and the evil one has come and, and snatched it away. Why? Because this soil represents it represents a stubborn heart. It represents the hard heart. The seed is sown, but it lands on cracked, dry earth. And it doesn't penetrate down into the soil that it might form form roots. This is the kind of person who, who hears the gospel and is completely unmoved by it, perhaps even cynical of it, just as a hard, stubborn response. Perhaps you remember when you were like that. Perhaps you're still like that. Today, I had a conversation with um, Somebody who's near and dear to me recently, where I was, was just—they don't know the Lord—and I was sharing the gospel message with them, with them again. And I've done this on a few occasions because I know them, I know them well. And on some occasions, I've just made like a total hash of it, you know. You know when you do that, you're like trying to share the gospel with someone, and you just kind of—well, it's God and Jesus and Bible and stuff, and sin and heaven and forgiveness, right? And you're just like, that was a, they're, no one could come to Christ through that sharing of the gospel, right? Well, this wasn't one of those times. This is one of the times where, like, preacher boy and my love for words, I was on it, and I, like, killed it, okay? I was just, like, gave a really good explanation of the gospel, and they just kind of looked at me, you know? Um, completely unmoved, <laughs> completely cynical. A good reminder, of course, and the humility for us all to remember that the power is in the Spirit, not in, not in us. But, but also a good example of the hard heart, The hard heart, don't have the ears to hear, can't penetrate beyond that dry ground. It's the first response we see to the gospel. It falls along the path, the stubborn heart. Second kind of soil that we see is in verse 5, where we read, other seeds fell on the, the rocky ground. you see it there? Rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away." Let's jump over again to verse 20 to see Jesus' interpretation of the rocky ground. He says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Verse 21, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this isn't the, the stubborn heart, but it's the, it's the shallow heart. It's the person who hears the gospel and initially has a, has a positive response, receives it with joy. They sense something of the love of the community, perhaps. They hear about the concepts of forgiveness and grace. They have some appeal to them, and, and they respond and seem to have a kind of outward... The gospel seems, to, seems to, outwardly seems to, to have impacted them. But then the trouble comes. Jesus refers to it as uh, tribulation or persecution on account of the word. Now, th- th- that's an important, important section. On account of the word. In other words, it becomes inconvenient to be a Christian. Which uh, doesn't take all that long. Right? It becomes inconvenient to become a Christian because of the trouble it causes in your life or the persecution you receive from others. And when this shallow person runs into that kind of uh, the consequence of being a believer, they just wander away from the faith. Now, it's important for us to wrestle with this, both so that we ourselves will be warned, but also to make sense of those that we have seen wander away from the faith. What has happened there? Well, what's happened is they, they seemed to have faith, but, but they didn't. It was It was shallow. And so the second trouble came, they fell away. Uh, Remember, um, yeah, just a sad situation with one of our young adults when I was doing the harvest ministry. A young gal who'd come from a really hard background had had come to the church and been loved well by the community and seemed to have uh, understood the gospel and seemed to be following Christ and there was great joy and celebration at what seemed to be her conversion. But then, slowly and surely, little by little, she started to learn more and more about the faith and, and dislike the implications of it for her new life. The way she would see it to limit her freedom or the way, for example, it came to a head when she was decided to move in with her boyfriend. We had a conversation about how this is not the best plan for your flourishing. There's a better way to live your life. And when faced with these kind of implications of being a believer, when faced with the inconvenience of, of following Christ, she wandered away. Why? Because her faith was shallow. Stubborn soil shallow soil. Thirdly, in verse 7, we see a third kind of soil. other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22, Jesus comments on this. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Similar to the shallow soil, this is the sidetracked soil. It's the soil who begins to follow Christ but then quickly finds that their focus, attention, and affection is found elsewhere. Not in the things of faith, but in the things of the world. Interestingly, Jesus gives us two ways in which we can become too uh, taken with this world. The first one is to have too many cares. It's to be so anxious and involved and, 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 and just sort of, Eager about the things of this life, that you find yourself always wrapped up in, in anxieties and fears. The second way is what he says that is the deceitfulness of of wealth. So, in other words, Jesus is saying you can care about this. You know, you can care about the world too much, either because you're too worried about it or because you love it too much. Either of those things reveals that your heart is is worldly, that your heart is set upon the things of earth, not upon the things of heaven. This is the this is the health and wealth soil, right? Those who appear to be walking in faith but quickly get sidetracked. Fourth kind of soil we see in verse 8 is the good soil. It's not stubborn and it's not shallow. It doesn't get sidetracked. Other seed falls on good soil and produces grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus interprets this in verse 23 by saying, This is the one who hears the word and understand it understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundred, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the the successful soil. The soil receives the gospel in the way that Christ intends. And we're told that the successful soil does does three things. First, it, it hears the gospel. Secondly it understands the gospel. And thirdly it bears fruit. So this is the one who hears the gospel message with a sense of of eagerness and and a sense of paying attention and listening to it, but doesn't just hear, understands it. This seed goes deep into the heart. It makes sense to them. It it resonates with them. They're, They're moved by it. And not only do they understand it, but then they start to bear fruit. It makes a difference to the life that they lead. With that, let's transition then to our to a consequence. And note two things that I think we need to learn from this successful soil. Two things we can all learn from this successful soil. The first of them is this. In the series on revival, what it means to, to be alive to God, awake to Him, animated by His grace, to live without pretending. In the series on revival, we need to remember that revival is first measured in depth. Revival is first measured in, in, in depth. In other words, it's first measured not in by how many people are coming to Christ or how, you know, how, how big the party is, but in how earnest, how faithful, how uh, zealous believers are in their love for Christ. And this passage is given to us really as something of a warning. Because you know of the, of the four soils... Only one is saved. These aren't four different types of Christian. These are three lost groups and one saved group. Because Jesus is pressing in on us and saying... It's not enough to be around the seat, to be around the gospel. It's not enough to be, to be near it. It's not enough just to, to hear it even. It has to take root deep into your soul that it makes a difference to your life. That's what it takes to be saved. And so he's, he's warning us, he's asking us, what, what kind of soil are you? If Jesus was here, would he say, would he say I'm the, I'm the stubborn soil, the shallow soil, the sidetracked soil? What category would he, would, he place, would he place you in? See, see, Jesus isn't afraid to say, you might think you're a Christian, but you might not be. I mean, he says it more directly, doesn't he? In, in Matthew chapter 7, it's like a few pages back, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. We could think of examples of this, like the, the church in Laodicea. Remember we preached on them in the, the start of this series? This church who, who thought they were faithful and even said, yeah, we are rich, we have prospered, we want for nothing. And Jesus said to them, yeah, actually, you're a poor, wretched, pitiable, weak. Or, man, scariest example in Scripture to me, of someone who thought they were a Christian but wasn't, uh, Judas. Judas. Judas lived with Jesus. Judas ministered alongside Jesus. Judas likely performed miracles in Jesus' name and yet was not a believer. And so we're challenged. And we're not not challenged, again, not just to interpret the parable, but let the parable interpret us. To consider what kind of soil we are. Because surely, if one of the disciples wasn't saved, I'm thinking there's a chance there's someone here who thinks they're a believer that isn't really saved. I'll put this as simply as I can, and I can't put it more simply than Paul does in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this. This is the point I'm trying to make. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And revival is primarily a matter of, of depth. Have you really been changed by Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Test yourself. I, I, last time I did this was listening, testing myself, was, was listening to a sermon by one of our church planters. Paul John leads the New City Church Plant in Falls Church. And I, like honestly, every time I hear him preach, after his first point, I'm pretty sure I'm not a Christian. <laughs> right? Um, and then after his third point, I've come to faith again. <laughs> okay, um, uh, and he was preaching on prayer, and he was kind of giving off like, the, like a bunch of different reasons as to why you might not pray. Okay, and then he just kind of threw in at the end all kind of nonchalant. Oh yeah, maybe you don't pray because you're not a Christian. Because if the Holy Spirit is in you, that same Spirit will lead you into fellowship with the Trinity. So Christians, by definition, ought to pray. So I'm sitting there thinking, Well, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you know, I'm just like feeling all kinds of different conviction. And, and and I wondered as I reflected on that sermon, was my friend Paul being too harsh? Right? You know, is he being too blunt about it? And then I heard Jesus say, I never knew you away from me, you worker of lawlessness. No, Paul is trying to be consistent with this New Testament emphasis that calls us to, to test ourselves. So Let's test ourselves. Do you really know the Lord? Well, how would you know? Have you heard the gospel? Have you understood it? Is it making a difference to your life? If you're worried that it's not, then today's a good day because there's grace here today. There's grace here today for you to come to Christ and really know him and receive his grace in a way that sinks into your soul and will change your life. My prayer for us is that on that great day that's, that's coming when we will all stand in judgment before the Lord, that there will not be a single person in this room who is lost, but that he will say to every single one of us, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. There's grace for us to be that way today. So we test ourselves that we might come for more. Secondly, though, finally, yes, this passage shows us, this good song shows us that revival is is primarily measured in depth. But after that, does it not also show us that Revival is also measured in in breadth, in breadth of ministry. Why? Because the one who has this depth of uh, faith, this depth of relationship with Christ, produces grain, some a hundredfold, verse 8, some 60, some 30. Jesus' commentary on this simply says, Indeed, the the one who has this depth bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. In, In other words, when the gospel really gets a grip on your life, it will necessarily bear fruit in your life. When you have a relationship with him that's really changed you, it will change the way that you interact with others. And one of the great benefits of this is that when the gospel gets a hold of a people, you start to see the numbers swell. Why? Because the gospel makes our lives compelling. The gospel um, changes us so that we're different husbands, and we're kinder fathers, and we are better colleagues, and we are more understanding bosses, and we are better artists, and we do, we do everything better in a way that becomes compelling to the world around us, in the way that becomes salt and light. Remember Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Well, none. But if the salt is salty, <laughs> it's of great use. And so this process of depth becomes compelling to the world around in a way that brings breadth. I was thinking about this, and it's kind of like, uh, I had a great conversation with my mom over the last couple of weeks, and it was reminding me of how, there's essentially being a Christian, the Christian community, is, it's kind of like picking berries. Okay? Um, my, my parents have moved from Edinburgh, the town I grew up in, up to the north of Scotland, uh, outside of, in a wee, a wee village outside of Inverness. So they've gone from a very urban area to a very rural area. So kind of picture the postcard, that's where my parents, parents now live. And one of the things that my mum is doing in this kind of new area is, uh, she has a garden and she's planting all kinds of different things. And she planted uh, loads of different berries Okay. Well, last summer my boys are over there and it's time to, to pick the berries. Okay, have you ever been berry picking? Right. What's the very first thing you do when you're pe- picking berries? You're you eat them, right? The very first thing, right? You eat them and you normally eat them till you feel sick, right? Um, but you, you, you eat them. Uh, and Why is that like the Christian life? Because the very first thing with the, you do with the gospel is enjoy it. <laughs> That's the very first thing you do. Uh, you, the first thing you do isn't share it. The first thing you do is you eat it. Secondly, what do you do? Uh, well, then you end up sharing it. You know, you pick so many berries, you don't know what to, you don't know what to do with them. My mom's telling me yeah, she's having to like, go to the neighbor next door and kind of give them, oh, here's some strawberries. And then she had to go to a friend at church and, you know, give her some blueberries. And it's just uh, handing out berries everywhere she's come, come serve, some crazy berry woman, right? And like, wherever she goes, there's like a berry falling out her purse, you know? Um, you, you share it because you have, you have more than unique. You, you enjoy it and you share it. And that's what, the God, that's what we're meant to do with the gospel. We enjoy it and then we share it there's a third step though and I'm kind of reminded of this step just by the fact that Jesus says that you know 100 fold, 60 fold, 30 fold um, what my mum did next after giving it so she ate some, she gave a lot away and then she made jam and she sent like 3 or 4 jars of it back with my boys which I actually don't think you're allowed to do right? it's like my mum sending my boys with illegal products on the plane um, but she, she, made, she made jam, and I was on the phone saying, oh, you know, thanks for the jam, Mom. And she was like, oh, you're welcome. And she was telling me, I just, I made so much of it. Like, I made so much more jam than I thought I was going to make, right? And I had to buy extra jars, and then I was giving this jam. I think I made, like, 27 jars of jam, right? And I was thinking, you know, that doesn't happen with other food. Like, Thanksgiving... Do you ever open the oven and, I've got 27 turkeys, you know, like, how do they multiply like this? You know, they don't, that that doesn't happen, right? Fruit, just another way of doing that. And that's what the Christian life's to be. It's to be a picture of having this gospel that we enjoy, and then that we share with others, and then that we see multiplying. And so that's why, as, as a church, we would recognize that, Okay, you could be cynical about it. You can have church growth and it not be revival. But you can't have revival without church growth. You can't have revival without church growth. And the, so as a church, we're not at all cynical about, about trying to grow. We're making jam, right? Uh, we want to see people brought into the faith here on this, on this campus. And we want to add a service this fall to see if we might reach a few more. And because we're making jam, we know that one jar is not going to be enough. So we want to be planting churches. We want to be doing all that we can to see a breadth of fruitfulness come from this depth of faithfulness. The parable would remind us, yes, to test ourselves on, on depth, but then also to seek a kind of breadth. Friends, we're out of time. How does Jesus end a sermon? These simple words. Verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. What word does he pressing in on your soul this morning what word jumped out to you as as we worked our way through this text what idea is is weighing on on your heart let's take a few moments to, to bring that before the Lord asking that we'd have the ears to hear what the spirit says to us this morning let's pray Father we do long to have Those ears that hear, those ears that have been touched by your spirit and by your grace, that we might understand your words to us. So, Father, we're grateful for this parable and for the lessons learned. And and, and do ask, Lord, that there wouldn't be a person in this room who's the stubborn, shallow, sidetracked soil, but that each of us would be that successful soil that hears the gospel and understands it and finds it makes a difference to our lives. Lord, would we see a a depth and breadth of fruitfulness here uh, all through your grace toward us. These things we pray in your perfect name. Amen.